speed in sharing data, speed in action, speed in changing the laws, speed in changing the policy. Uh, we are just way too slow. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. In a recent RAIN webinar entitled When a Good Defense Isn't Enough Going on the Cyber Offensive, RAIN founder David Lawrence led a discussion tackling the tricky questions of offensive cyber operations versus the traditional approaches of building bigger cyber fences. It hasn't been long since the massive and still unfolding attack on solar winds. It's been even less time since the Microsoft Exchange hack. Governments and businesses are now dealing with near-constant efforts to breach their walls and harm their systems. The Biden administration has pledged to take on the country's cyber adversaries and has suggested that could include offensive cyber actions alongside deterrence like sanctions and criminal charges. These offensive measures could range from destructing computer networks used for cybercrime to unleashing cyber weapons on an adversary's critical infrastructure. But while the government considers such tactics... Is that a good way for businesses to protect their architecture from threat actors? Lawrence spoke to a panel of experts, including Jeff Castelli, former managing director at Accenture Federal Services. Jeff has 30 years of national security sector service and deep experience leading the adoption of cutting-edge technology, particularly information technology. Guillermo Christensen is managing partner at the Data Security and Privacy and White Collar Defense Groups at Ice Miller. Guillermo combines his experience as an attorney, a former CIA intelligence officer, and a diplomat to shape and inform the advice he provides to clients on various enterprise risks, including cybersecurity and national security law. And John Ford, cyber strategist at IronNet Cybersecurity. John is a compliance IT information security and operations executive, and he specializes in designing, building, and transforming regulated organizations. Get ready for a lively conversation. Partnership. Uh, ironically, 17, 18 years ago, Craig Mundy from uh, Microsoft, who was the uh, CTO at the time, was advocating uh, the government to start a, a Manhattan Project version uh, to deal with the issue of what he called, what's called at the time, trusted computing, which seems uh, quaint these days. Um, but that's essentially what we're talking about. Uh, but sadly, uh, 17 years ago, we didn't get around to doing that. Um, so it's, it's a 17, 18 years too late. And that's the best thing we can do right now to uh, not only defend ourselves, but to develop a coherent and effective attack strategy. Um, I'm certainly in favor of going out and taking down networks that we know for certain are, are the, uh, the layers of uh, cyber criminals, especially. Uh, uh, but we shouldn't fool ourselves that, uh, that doing that's going to make the problem go away immediately. Um, they would certainly be able to reconstitute themselves quickly. It makes me think of uh, many years ago when I went uh, during, uh, during the first Bush administration, excuse me, the second Bush administration, and there were the beheading videos that were proliferating on the Internet, as grisly, horrific crimes that uh, terrorists were committing against innocent civilians out there and then putting them on the Internet. And President Bush said, we need to make these go away. And I had to spend a long time down in Tampa with General Abizade, together with other colleagues in the community, talking about that issue. And we, we came to refer to it as Waka Web, meaning you, know, you can take it down, but it's going to come right back up somewhere else. Uh, so there needs to be a far more effective strategy than just going out and taking down networks because they are so easily reconstituted. That said, you know, it's better to do something than nothing, uh, but we have to can't think that that's a, uh, you know, panacea for the whole problem. Um, so just as a I think I'll stop. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, yeah, just as a, a takeaway, I just, I think I'm going to lose some very, very critical points here. So obviously, um, cybersecurity has been a game of whack-a-mole, okay? You may hit them all once and pop up somewhere else. Uh, secondly, what you're also suggesting here is that uh, just going on the uh, and coming up with offensive strategies not going to solve the problem. You're highlighting um, a basic underlying issue, which is we haven't yet figured out the model for what we'll call trusted computing and maybe defining 
the trust between the private and public sector where information can be shared shared without embarrassment, impunity, shame, uh, blame, et cetera. And um, I know we're going to get to Guillermo and, and his sort of worldly lens to this, uh, but that has historically been an issue with all crime reporting um, of what information is shared with the government and vice versa with the citizens, what gets reported, what gets prosecuted, you know, what can you not be um, ashamed about if if something happens to you and of course the the information that goes back and forth to help prevent these issues so uh jeff i i take that that there's a fundamental modeling issue that you're identifying here that has to be rethought or reinvented and just as a reminder because um hopefully we can simplify this for the audience but the issues that corporations and government agencies and our national security that we are facing go back to biblical times. Uh, everything from sabotage and espionage and bribery and extortion and fraud, all these things are now playing out exponentially and on a very, very scalable way with a great deal of impunity and anonymity, but just through new portals. But these are old issues and old issues that we have um, statues and we also have some experience in dealing with it's just obviously at a very different level and with different threat actors uh, behind them um, and with obviously a great deal of impunity. So um, Jeff, some great points in Guillermo. Um, I know you've thought about this from a very much from a legal standpoint and a legal lens and maybe you can just get your views in terms of where we are and how we got here and what we need yeah, to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So one one thing I wanted to note in line with with uh, the comments about how to define offensive, the one thing that I think we are excluding from this is what I would call the true offensive cyber operations, which would be those in in essentially combat. So basically, and it doesn't require obviously a declaration of war, but the kinds of things that every country on the face of the earth, if they have the capability, is going to engage in before they actually start dropping bombs, because it makes a whole lot of sense. So we're going to stop short of that. We're talking about essentially um, the, the, the operational side of an offensive capability. And one thing that I wanted to just touch on is um, the reluctance that I think exists out there around this concept is uh, in, in a large part because of uncertainties. This is a relatively undefined area. I don't think it's so much that it so much comes from companies being concerned about releasing information. And, and I will quibble with, with the point that companies are very concerned about disclosure of information. I handle a, a lot of victim situations for companies. And these days, it is a standard thing that we are in touch with law enforcement disclosing a whole enormous amount of information about what's happened. Where I, what I question is the disclosure, the public disclosures, because that's questionable in terms of, of the value in a lot of cases, and it's driven in large part because of the history that <clears throat> data privacy has in our country because of the wacky ways in which we do identity verification, that identity theft can happen because somebody has your driver's license number, your social security number, which is not the case in other countries. Uh, my my identification number, for example, I'm a dual citizen, is available in another country, and it's never been used for identity theft because we just they don't do it that way. So. Anyway, that let me get my off my data privacy soapbox, which is another one. But I think that the real question here is, can government and private sector work together to deny the enemy? And, and the enemy here is mostly very organized cyber criminal gang. Those are the ones that worry me the most. Uh, deny them, but basically an open battlefield where they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, and get away with it and make a lot of money from it. And maybe one in 10,000 someday maybe gets popped, meaning they get off a plane somewhere and someone with a three-letter um, um, badge on the back of their rain jacket gets them off the plane and puts them in jail. And two or three years later, they plead guilty. That's about the only thing they have to worry about right now. So in my view, those that's the group right now that I'm most concerned about. That's the group that I think our companies and the government should be most concerned about. And, you know, these guys are making a lot of money. Some of them happen to be um, affiliated with nation states. 
the North Koreans are basically one giant criminal state, so it would be hard to distinguish between between them. Um, but I think we need to be doing more. And I think the private sector, uh, I think, should be part of that. That's my view, because a lot of the infrastructure is in their control, and they they can respond respond more quickly. If we have to wait for the for the uh, for for law enforcement or other parts of the government to step into that, knowing having spent so much time in the government, how many sign offs you have to get before you can do something, it, it won't happen in real time. And examples of things that could and have been done that are hybrids of this, the takedowns of botnets that some of the large uh, telecom and service companies have have done. Microsoft's done some amazing work in that. That's offensive uses. Now that's through legal process, so it's 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 much safer from in, in this angle. Um, but you know, you push that a little bit further, and you might be in a place where you can do more. As a last point here, I will just note, you know, in the last couple of weeks, there's been some good reporting about a couple of major Russian uh, cyber criminal forums that all of a sudden had some funny stuff happen and and they were taken down information was was uh was seized that i don't know who did that i'll just say i have nothing to do with it but um but that's the kind of activity that we should be doing these these forums are are i think uh, open for interdiction and and then maybe the last thing i'll mention and i I'd raised it before is you know in the old days when the royal navy did not have enough ships to go out there and patrol the, the sea lanes, they deputized the letters of mark concept that I'm sure all of you have heard of. They deputized uh, their merchant ships to become essentially, you know, uh, legal pirates and go after the enemy's um, enemy's ships. Um, something akin to that, you know, might be something we should experiment with. That's one one thought. Now, obviously, uh, you know, you you in in a pirate uh, context, there's a profit motive. I'm not talking about. Uh, companies stealing information. I'm talking about denying the enemy the advantage of an open battlefield where there are no defenses of any value at this point. Some great points, and I love drawing upon history because one of the things, and interestingly, Jeff and I have written about this. Um, you know, while we're talking about the digital world, there there's history in the analog world in terms of where we are and why we're here and what the response might be. And so, drawing upon uh, deputizations. Um, you know, or conscripting, uh, I don't want to suggest that mercenaries is an interesting uh, response in terms of what might be needed. And, and thanks for bringing up the, the what appears to be a recent disruption of a, uh, of a number of organized rings. As we, John, as we pivot to you, because uh, you are leading an effort with a very, very sophisticated company that is acutely aware of the sophistication behind the attacks. Uh, and I want to build on something that both Jeff and Guillermo have pointed out. Uh, but just in terms of what is happening, um, let me bring up what I think is, is uh, goes to the point about something has to change here about the model of what we're doing with companies and the collaboration and reporting and um, the role of government. And obviously at IronNet, you're sort of a uh, quasi-government protective agency. Uh, I don't want to call you guys the, you know, we'll go back a couple hundred years to 150 years to the Brinks organization. But um, the situation that happened with Equifax, and again, to Guillermo's point about impunity of the actors, uh, Equifax had a very much a um, existential issue occur with their breach. Uh, consumers lost a lot of confidential information. Uh, there were all sorts of regulatory uh, responses, fines, civil settlements, resignations, careers were ruined, congressional hearings, AGs, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was about two, three years later that the FBI uh, and the Justice Department brought charges against Chinese military officials, uh, charges that I can't imagine they will ever uh, answer, um, but it was publicized that this was a state-sponsored attack and obviously highly sophisticated. And I, I know one of the points that you three have made, and you in particular, John, is that you know companies just not are—it's are, not a level playing field here, and that's part of perhaps how we got to the point, you know, 
of the need for the government or some other bodies to go on the offensive. But maybe you can um, help discuss the playing field as it now exists, the nature of the threat actors behind this, and are there some rules of the road as we think about potentially going on an offensive strategy? Sure. So thanks, David. And you know when you know when you really look at this problem, um, you're 100% right. Uh, I use the same term. We're at an inflection point, and uh, unfortunately, this inflection point's not going in the right direction. Um, there's there's no doubt that the brazenness that we've seen from nation states uh, has increased. And then to Guillermo's point, you know, the cyber criminals have increased both the volume, velocity, and the sophistication of their attacks. And, and in some cases, um, you know, we could argue that they at times serve as proxies for some of these nation states. So the reality is we are up against adversaries that uh, very, very little, very few companies, in, you know, in this nation of ours, right, uh, you know, large enterprise sectors um, have the ability to defend against, number one, much less go on the offensive, number two, right? So, um, you know, you, you really, you know, you have to really think about what that means when you say you want to go offensive, right? Um, but, you know, I want to drift back a little bit and say, but, you know, how do we level a playing field? But, um, you know, what's, what's really, um, you know, the right approach? And, you know, the, the, way, we, the way I believe for sure is that uh, the best approach is that we need to um, share better with the government. And we have ways of doing that, right? I know we've been saying that. People have been saying, oh, but does it work? Um, the reality is the government's the only one that really, on our behalf, um, has the ability to respond, you know, to a measure um, – you know, create a measured response, whether that's through sanctions, uh, other diplomatic entities, um, you know, a cyber attack or even a kinetic attack, right? Um, you know, because they can handle uh, the ramifications that come from that. And, and you know, any U.S. enterprise is not really in a position to do that. Uh, the unintended consequences would certainly crush that company. And I doubt there's any uh, uh, folks on this call whose board of directors would approve any type of offensive measures. So, I don't think it's up to uh, U.S. enterprises and sectors to respond, um, you know, operationally to, you know, to an attack, uh, you know, uh, offensively. But um, so how do we get there and how we how do we level the playing field? How do we uh, I use the term rising tide floats all boats. And we have the capability today to share anonymously. And this is a, the most important word anonymously um, metadata about network traffic. Um, that flows through, you know, each of the enterprises and sectors that gives indicators, you know, indications of behaviors about uh, either known, known attacks or uh, things that are kind of unknown. And we can see those coming if you think about it almost like a radar screen. So in the energy sector, for example, um, we can see if one entity is being attacked and then 10 other, uh, 10 other entities can see that as well. And they can say, hey, I see an attack coming. Um, I know what I, I know what I should do. I should prioritize this, uh, and I should mobilize my team to respond to this potential threat, right? When we take that information and as we validate that data and we share it back to the government in that same anonymized fashion, we have now enabled the government to do, to, well, we've enabled them, uh, to take charge and do what they would normally want to do with that, um, you know, and taking the enterprise out of that equation, right? So that's, that's one. Uh, we should let the government respond to that event and, and not have the, you know, the enterprise respond to it. But what we've also done is not all of these companies are created the same. And so a smaller company with less defenses than a larger company, um, by, by sharing this type of traffic and this information, we're all seeing the same thing at the same time. It's like looking at a radar screen. We can all see the planes, not just the big companies that can see the planes, but the small ones can see the planes. And we can come together as a community, kind of in a crowdsourced way, uh, to better defend, right? So, you know, when I, when I hear the term offensive, um, I've been in this business a real long time and, um, I, 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 not, I, I fully believe that there's not a board of directors out there that would approve that. Um, but I could also tell you that, um, you know, we have to be really careful when we throw stones because we are the most networked country in the world. And we are more vulnerable than most of the countries that are attacking us, whether that's even a criminal group or 
or a nation state. We are really, you know, probably more vulnerable than most, right? Um, and so I, I, I think we have to leave the offensive capabilities to the government and, uh, and, and not really uh, deputize uh, organizations in any way, shape or form, because, you know, the uh, unintended consequences, I think, could be very severe. So, John, um, I'm going to summarize at least one theme here. I hear each of you saying uh, we need to go on the offensive in terms of sharing information and a closer relationship between the government and the private sector. So a little bit of internal offensive activity here. We're not yet organized. We're not yet doing as much as we can. And one of the questions I'd like to throw out to you, because there, there, there is a basic question here. Uh, it's just, um, in some respects, uh, Marshall McLuhan had a wonderful expression, the medium is a message. The message that that I think is coming through here is that we have yet to really define what is the role of the government in terms of protecting not only its own agencies, but also broadly city and state infrastructure, well, corporations, if I could jump. et cetera. Yeah, please do. Yeah, if I could jump in on that. The, the challenge that we've had from the government perspective um, is not the government protecting the government networks, even though they, you know, they are vulnerable, right? But the visibility that the government has into the private sector. Um, nobody wants, you know, or, or any of the agencies do not want, um, you know, the ability to monitor the network traffic of any enterprise. Um, but without visibility of the attacks that are uh, facing those organizations, the government's kind of blind, right? So this, this capability of being able to anonymously share real-time network traffic um, does not provide attribution back to a single organization, but allows the government to see emerging attacks occur in real time and respond accordingly, right? So that's, you know, it, we've had this challenge where all of the conversations we've had with the government, with the ISACs and sharing information that's, you know, two or three weeks old, it's not going to get us there, right? Um, emails aren't going to get us there, right? Um, we have to do this in real time, but we also, uh, you know, the government has to have the capability to see as these attack, how these attacks are occurring, right? And, but we have this capability today. Um, it, it's not, you know, it's not been around forever, but we do have this capability today. And I, and I think that that's the best way that we can move forward, um, without people having to be concerned that the government's over, you know, overseeing my, my network traffic. They're not, um, or any of my data. They, they won't, right? Um, but but to be able to see emerging tax as they occur and to take action accordingly. We'll get back to our discussion about going on the cyber offensive in just a moment. This podcast is part of a suite of intelligence and risk mitigation offerings from RAIN, the Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. These include daily email digests of the latest risk news and analysis, intelligence briefs on cybersecurity, geopolitical risk, and financial crime, knowledge-sharing webinars, advisories on critical developments, and custom support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. With new risks and emerging threats increasing in many areas, there's no better time to enroll in RAIN's core membership, a low-cost way to access critical insights and analysis in support of your business continuity and risk mitigation efforts. You can learn more at RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. Please, guys, just jump in. A couple of things I just wanted to mention. The first is, um, I completely agree that our economy is by far one of the most vulnerable, um, but that's already well known. I mean, the reality is most most of, of uh, our adversaries and most of these cyber criminals are quite well aware, and they could probably give us great tutorials on how vulnerable our economy is to cyber crime, but also to the kind of offensive and semi-offensive reconnaissance that a number of nation states have done into our critical infrastructure, um, the, the thousands of reports of critical infrastructure entities, whether it's uh, pipelines or other companies that have found evidence of um, different pieces of, of software that they that have been implanted for some future scenario, all that's already there. Um, we, we couldn't, fra- frankly, become more vulnerable than we already are. So the question is, if we don't do anything, will that 
keep our enemies from doing worse things to us. I question that, especially on the criminals. The criminals are going to try to make as much money as they can. And again, I think that that's one of the biggest problems. In terms of who would go on the offensive, I am not talking about, you know, the large public companies that have probably more complicated decision-making structures than the government does. I'm talking about small incident responders, the kind of companies that I work with a lot who have these capabilities and could add on their great know-how into what the government is doing, only moving more quickly. Obviously, they're going to need some changes in uh, our current domestic laws with respect to this. But if you think about, you know, taking down, say, uh, uh, a North Korean or a Russian or a Chinese criminal gang or an Iranian group, um, I think we can probably come up with some rules of engagement for that. They may need to be innovative and they may require some tweaking as we go along and we learn things. But this is, to me, is an area where we can innovate. And I always get concerned when when everyone is, is uh, you know, sort of in consensus, which I think is largely where most of the cyber community is on this, saying, uh, you know, this is a terrible idea, but we actually haven't really tried it, except if you go back probably about 20 years when, when I was very early in the Internet, when the Internet was very early, and when you were a domain administrator, and I remember this, and you saw some funky traffic happening, you would call up the other admins and you would say, hey, guys, this, you know, whoever this creep is, is trying to hammer our networks. Let's just, you know, make this go away. And and it would go away. Uh, doing things that today would probably be against the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and things like that. But there were, you know, that was an effective mechanism at a very different time. And that's more what I'm talking about than you know, IBM or Microsoft launching cyber attacks on Russia. You know, uh, it's interesting. Before I respond specifically to that, I would say that the the greatest need across the board here now is speed. As John said, speed in sharing data, speed in action, speed in changing the laws, speed in changing the policy. Uh, We are just way too slow. I've worked in government and private sector, both in startups and in a large corporation. And as we all know, large corporations tend to resemble the government more and more as they get bigger and bigger, but they're still not as slow as the government. But that that is, to me, the greatest impediment right now. You know, they, they made this big deal out of this Solarium Commission who ended up, you know, belaboring the obvious in their report that any, any CISO across the country could have written uh, and nothing really dramatic came out of that. Uh, Amen. And, that has just got to end. And now, now to the to the point of uh, um, enabling, empowering, uh, uh, authorizing small companies made up of lots of former uh, government guys who used to do it in the government to to do to do these attacks. Um, I got asked a question again that I that I asked in our earlier conversation. That is, who pays for it? Because they're not. What do they get to do? They get to attack the criminal network and steal their Bitcoin and keep that. I mean, how do they stay alive as a little company? Because uh, you know the big companies, I suppose, could afford could afford to put a team like that together, uh, but would be unwilling to for all the reasons you described, perhaps unable to. Uh, and small companies that might be eager to do that, they gotta they gotta pay the rent. Uh, and you know, the letters of Mark uh, reference you made earlier, those guys paid their rent by taking their cut off of the, the bullion of the gold that they stole off of Spanish ships. Um, so, and again, those guys that are in those small companies out there, many of which I've met, um, they came from places that are already authorized to do that. Uh, and uh, and so I'm not, I don't, I don't see how that model. I, mean, I don't see how you. In the private sector perspective, how do you make that model uh, effective for those those companies' investors? Well, I, I would even add, you know, in order for a small company like that to be effective, we do have the resources available, you know, to enable a company like that. But but, but let's put it into the, the, the time speed again. Um, how would a small company know that there's an attack on IBM? How would they know? Right. In real In real time. That, you know, unless they unless they were on their network with real time tools monitoring real time traffic. Right. So that the the thing is, like, you know, I, I don't disagree with the concept, uh, Gamero, because I I think what we need is I think what we need to take the people that 
this country is trained so well and, and, and have them, um, you know, support, you know, some of these initiatives. But, you know, whenever I hear all of this, you know, all of these concepts, I keep coming back to if we, if, if our ultimate goal is to deter, which it really should be, enable a cost that makes it hard for people to, you know, to continue doing this. And that cost doesn't always have to be pain to them. It just could be, it's too hard, right? Then, then what we, then what we have to do is find a way to prevent the attacks occurring in the first place, not just respond to attacks after they occur, right? So if we make it significantly harder for our adversaries to attack the energy sector, because everybody in the energy sector could see the same threats at the same time and could put up better defenses, well, then that adversary is going to say, yeah, maybe I should go to healthcare because this is getting a little hard, right? And yeah. the only way that you can do that is if you have real-time information. Right. Because we, we can't do that with with, hey, I'll send you an email in two weeks and, hey, I got attacked and this is what happened. Uh, that That's that's not useful information anymore. Right. So wh- whatever whatever the outcome of this is, the goal should be a deterrent capability. But we have to have real time information to accomplish that. John, I, I, I agree. John and Jeff. Yeah. If I want to I want to lead into the team we, we discussed. Um, but I keep I keep being attached to viewing this not as a uh, technologically complex issue. And I just, I just think there, there's precedence here. And what I'm hearing all three of you say, but particularly John and, and Jeff, is that and let's take this to street crimes. Let's take it to breaking and entering. Let's take it to assaults, et cetera. If you don't have people who are reporting in real time to nine one to a nine one one, okay, just to use that, there is no nine one one for cyber. Um, you effective enforcement, deterrence, and response is not going to be there, and we just don't have it in this space. Even though the crimes that are are occurring are very very traditional crimes. I mean theft. And, you know, the extortion, you know, to, or bribery uh, to, you know, in exchange for information that's been seized or espionage or sabotage, et cetera. And so what I'm hearing you say is that the platform does not yet exist for real-time reporting and real-time response and real-time information sharing. As you're aware, there are a whole bunch of apps that are out there right now that people keep on their phones so they can see what's happening in their neighborhoods or the places that they're going to. We also have it for traffic control, but not that does not yet exist in this space. And there oh, seems to be a little bit of an el- – yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, no, it actually does. It's it's the adoption, right? There's two pieces. The adoption, yeah. It, it, right. A mo- there's a model out there. It's just people have not – accepted it. And John, that was actually the elephant in the room is why hasn't that happened yet? And is this a matter of basic trust between the government and the private sector? Yeah, David, if I could, I was going to say, I think first, there is already a 911 of sorts in the sense that most companies uh, of a certain scale have an incident response team, usually external. That is what that is who gets the 911 call, and I'm one of those. So you get that call. So you do have that. In terms of sharing the information, um, I, I, I do think when you get into the actual um, types of, of compromises and attacks that are going on, you know, for example, when, when we're dealing with a ransomware event, we have well-established vehicles of communication with law enforcement. I have the FBI and the Secret Service often on speed dial. We know which particular field offices are the ones that are focused on which particular threat actors are on a particular ransomware. There's a lot of information sharing going on. However, in terms of what you can do about it, there's almost nothing you can do about it because nobody can go after them directly right now. And so that's, I think that that's a, a, a component of this that I think we have to keep in mind. I can share all the, the IOCs, all the indicators are compromised, all the ransom letters and notes we get on ransomware with the FBI, 
And there's not much they can do about it because their tools are find these guys, arrest them, extradite them. And that's very difficult. I think we need to have something between that and what we're doing right now, which is paying ransoms or watching companies having to recover their systems through, you know, weeks and months of painful uh, IT work. And and I think there is room there. That's that's what I'm arguing. The other thing is none of this is going to be perfect from the before you go on before you go into that next point, Guillermo. Let me let me just I, I want to sort of if I can I um, want to give people a framework to understand this because you brought up a very very good point. Okay, well first of all, when in traditional law enforcement, uh, people report the crimes, the police respond, prosecutors, and hopefully the judicial process works reasonably well if if not sometimes slowly okay and but but people don't take the enforcement of the laws um, into their own hands but there are elements that are applicable to this of notions of self-defense stand your ground etc we haven't seen that yet modeled into the system but you're also bringing up a point that the people behind this have been beyond the law They've been uh, working remotely, scalably, at times anonymously, but you're also suggesting, and we do have this, you know, whether it's in areas of fraud or corruption or what have you, uh, we have something that are called treaties. We have Interpol that helps, you know, on a global basis, coordinate law enforcement efforts. You know, we, we have, you know, various agreements with countries for extradition of people. That is not yet in place, and that's what I'm hearing you say as well, uh, and that's part of the frustration point. And and maybe, maybe, you know, we have to give some thought to that uh, as part of going on the offensive. Agreed. And I will say the vehicles that we have for judicial cooperation also need to be updated without a doubt, and there are moves to do that, um, but you know, if, if you look at, if you read any of the indictments, and DOJ has been great about giving a lot of detail about these, the amount of work that goes into, for example, there's a there's a guy that they caught in uh, the UAE, a guy named Ramon Abbas. He's one of my favorites. Uh, his his nickname is Hush Puppy. Um, headed a group that made hundreds of millions of dollars through uh, through cybercrime. The amount of work they they put into that is incredible for one guy. And he was probably replaced in that organization within hours of that happening, and they rolled on. Um, that's a lot of effort to do something that looks good but actually doesn't do very much. And so if you try to do that on scale, you'd have to probably hire another you know, million special agents for the FBI to go after these guys. Not really. And that, that's the exact point, right? So, you know, if, if we take this conversation – and look at it from a timeline. Let's look at what happens left of boom and right of boom. Everything that you just mentioned is right of boom. The event occurred. There's an incident response capability. You know, all of that occurs, right? The the deterrence of that is not going to be that strong for the reasons that you mentioned. Ransomware is close to the most perfect business model that you can find. If anybody came up to you with a blindfold and said, hey, you know what? How would you like to be in a business? You don't have to know anything about it. Right. You can be up and running in a week and put three hundred dollars on the underground. You're going to make one hundred and fifty K by Friday. Right. You're not going to get caught. You're not going to have competition. Perfect. Right. So the business model is not going away and we shouldn't expect it to. Right. And you're right. We spend tremendous amounts of resources on that. The left of boom is the is the area where we have a better opportunity to start deterring the attacks from occurring by making it costly. Not so much in legal you know, realm. But in, hey, it's harder to attack these companies because they're all working together, right? Like if you go back to the 1700s, before we had fire departments, we had bucket brigades. And if there were 50 people in the town and the first house went in flames, right? If the other 49 came out with buckets, we would lose one house and we'd help them rebuild that on the Sunday. But you know what? If, if only 10 people came out to help with that bucket brigade, you'd lose three quarters of the village. Right. That's yep. what that's that's the thing. So what what occurs left of boom today needs to be this crowdsource mentality. Right. Of sharing in real time, sharing that with the government. And and over time, we will deter the ability for some of these attacks to occur. When that happens, 
the business model is going to say, the bad business, bad guy business model is going to say, well, it's getting a little hard. Let me go someplace else, right? Now, right of boom activities can probably be more efficient, right? But, you know, we have to look at the deterrent capability on both sides of that uh, of that timeline. Oh, I, I totally agree. And one, one important thing, clarification you're to make is, I am not putting this offensive capability at the exclusion or taking away from anything we can do on defense or sharing. I think we can be doing all that. And I'm just saying, add to that. If, if, yeah, if sure. I have knowledge to do these two, I will always prefer that we do more protection, of course. This is kind of an add-on to that. And then, and then the other pieces in, in terms of left of, of boom or right of boom, in some ways, the offensive capabilities that I'm talking about are actually left of boom here, right? It's sort of like you're, if you're thinking the IED uh, context in Afghanistan, I'm not talking about going to you know the site after someone's been blown up. I'm talking about actively scanning the road and interfering with the signals for the devices. That's offensive in this realm. So I'm talking about that, interdicting the capabilities of the threat actors before they get into my system and blow me up. Totally agree. I agree as well. And so there's an enormous amount of change that has to happen very quickly for that to become an effective part of this overall strategy. I agree that judicial effort is necessary but insufficient. Defense is necessary but insufficient. Uh, and frankly, you know, my information is dated. I haven't been in government for a while. But in the old days, what we're talking about is covert action. And uh, that required uh, an enormous amount of legal and policy process. It took a very long time to do very specific things. And I don't know where they are on that process now, but um, that's a that's thing that has traditionally for years in our government been something that we've held in reserve for only the most dire and unavoidable uh, circumstances. Uh, and I agree that in this case, it's becoming dire and unavoidable. But uh, getting back to my earlier point, the model for how we do that is just so antiquated and so slow and so policy burdened and legal, legally burdened that uh, that model just has to change. But, and so they have to do that very quickly in order for this to be effective. So let me... Um raise um, an issue. We're getting some great questions from uh, the audience, so I'm going to try to merge them uh, together. Um, one of the issues, and Jeff, uh, you've referenced prior <laughs> a prior study where you said a uh, CISO could have written that and didn't have to go through the pain and damage. But one interesting um, finding that did come out uh, was a lack of trust that many companies had of our government. But David, was and that a finding? Really, they, that was a finding? We've known that for not 25 so, no, years. No, no, not, so not, not so much a finding as a observational point that was made by one of the authors, okay? I, I can't remember whether it was footnoted, Jeff, or not. I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up. Uh, but in speaking to some of the leading tech companies, um, it came out that, a number of people, uh, and, and keep in mind, this may be, you know, this is this could be a dated view in light of everything that's happened over the last, you know, several years, um, that they trusted China, government officials in China, more than they did the U.S. And again, it wasn't with attribution or anything, but it, it was just something that came up. And as we think about this model, um, the ability of the government to protect its people from time immemorial of our foundation has required um, the assistance of the citizenry. That citizens could come forward, could report, could share information, could be, I'll call it a safe harbor. And yet, you know, that may not yet exist and that may be part of the issue of how to go on the offensive here. Because what I'm hearing each of you say is that this is an information game. This is a reporting game. Time is of the essence. And the accuracy and completeness of the information is of the essence. And we don't yet have that mechanism for the free flow of information. 
And I will tell you absolutely, because I see it in the comments that are coming through here, you know, c companies feel the government doesn't share enough with them about what they're seeing to ward off attacks. There's a, a view that, you know, information is asymmetrically held. The government knows of things and perhaps because they don't want to reveal how they know certain things, attacks have been permitted to occur uh, without warning to the organization. So they're the, how should I say, they're, they're the collateral damage for various policy reasons. And I thought maybe I could um, get you guys to comment on that. And is there a model? Is there a model that could be constructed? And if so, what might that look like? Where the government and the private sector could, in a trusted way, begin to share information back and forth and not just, you know, not just a matter of corporate reporting. I think, I mean, personally, I think um, that's a big, a big crux of this whole concept, right? You know, because we, um, we have had in the past, and I think we'll continue to have um, areas where, you know, we gather credible intelligence um, that if acted upon might prevent uh, the knowledge of future intelligence. And, and I, and, and I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. It's probably an opportunity cost um, decision, but, um, but I do think that, you know, uh, there are ways and I, and I, and I, I would hope that, uh, and I hate to say this, but, you know, out of this, uh, out of the Solarium Commission, um, I, I believe that, uh, there will be, you know, commentary and discussion regarding that very thing on, on how to make more timely information available to the private sector, right? Um, but that's, that's absolutely required and it's, it's, it's an absolutely great point. Um, but I don't think the opportunity cost scenario would ever go away. It's just my opinion. Yeah, if I could, um, so two things. First, uh, I completely agree on, on, on the Solarium Commission, but I will say anytime Congress can educate itself on, on these essentials, it's a good thing, even if they're not educating the rest of us. Um, but they need, they need to get on top of this and the hearings that you've seen around, um, the solar winds attack, uh, I think were more educated from the congressional side and they might have been absent the Solarium Commission, uh, work. On the, on the information sharing, I think we're in a much better potential place now than we were a few years ago for a couple of reasons. First, the community of cyber experts that, that mans, uh, the, 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 the battlefield right now inside the United States is much more developed than it used to be. Uh, besides all the big players, CrowdStrike and, and all the companies you read about, most, you know, most cyber and incident responders have someone who was in the government or played a role in that. The CISOs, the chief information security officers for most companies now have extensive experience. That the marketplace is starting to roll up a, a, a wave of talent that's better trained and also understands the value of sharing information and keeping it confidential. And I think government is becoming more, has more confidence now that they can share and find a good audience and vice versa. So I think that's going to get better. Um, it's going to take time to be sure, but it's getting better. And, and I'm confident that it will yield more and more advantages, even if it's not going to be as perfect as anybody here would like it to be. But it needs to be put. It needs also a better legal framework to continue to happen. Um, the information sharing legal framework we have right now is mostly focused on sharing indicators, automated indicators. And that is not easy for small companies. It's really only big companies are doing that. I think there should be some something more on that. And, and also a little bit more of a protection around companies that investigate cyber incidents and create reports. This is something that's very close to my lawyer heart around privilege. You know, when companies investigate what happened and they have a forensic report, um, we really should have almost a separate privilege on that. And there have been discussions about that that mm -hmm. exclude some of the sensitive information and the mitigation measures that are recommended from being disclosed and handed off to, say, plaintiff's lawyers who turn around and sue the company. Again, because very much like airline safety, we want people to be safer, not just be sued in court. So that's my that's my little legal uh, perspective there at the very end in terms of uh, what we need to change there. Uh, we're, we're going past the 50 
minutes that we've allotted and, and purposely so. So we'll be uh, posting um, the conversation uh, in a sort of director's cut. Uh, let's take, um, if we can, just another 10 minutes or so. I want to try to address some of the uh, questions here. And just to go back to um, the Solarium Commission, uh, amongst their leading recommendations um, was about strengthening norms and um, military tools. And the question, you know, that has, uh, we're seeing this from our audiences, uh, is it okay for a company that's been attacked to fight back. Elements of self-defense, elements of stand your ground, um, elements of, um, you know, the government did not protect me here and I got to do what I can to protect my network. So if, if, if I may very quickly, my, my takeaway on this would be if you're in the middle of an attack and you can do something to prevent it, I think we should consider very much giving people the option to be able to defend themselves. So I, I agree, and, and it's been, a, you know, it's been fairly common knowledge in the community that companies already do that and ask for forgiveness afterwards. Uh, but uh, um, in a crisis situation, no one would blame them to, to do what they need to do. The problem is, what is it do they actually do and what kind of tools and capabilities do they have to actually do something to uh, to uh, mitigate the threat they're facing. And that's uh, that's where a, a better model comes into place. Yeah, I, I, w I would add that, you know, if you really picked us apart and, and I've been I've been the CISO with several companies, I've been been there when active incidents are occurring and, you know, they're not fun. Um, that most of the activities are really uh, defensive, right? They may they may seem offensive, but most of them are, are defensive, right? Um, you're, you're you're trying to stop something from continuing, so you take certain actions. To me, that's not offensive at all. Um, you know, so you, you do that. However, you know, um, where where I think this gets ugly is let, let's assume, let's play the scenario out, right? What if there is a true offensive hackback and there's unintended consequences on innocent people, innocent companies, as a result of maybe that company deployed tools that they really didn't, you know, have, you know, the best skill set on, and now there's unintended consequences. Who's accountable, right? Is it the government? Well, no, because the government didn't know you were attacking back, um, and, and, you know, and now you have unintended consequences. When I, when I think of that scenario, uh, I could tell you from, you know, the leadership positions I was in, I would never allow for that activity to occur because of that, right? And because I knew that my teams, um, you know, were, were, were at best adequate defensively, um, but were not adequate offensively, right? So I, I, you know, my own opinion, and this is my own, is, I would take any measures to prevent the attack from continuing, but you know anything beyond that that looks like I'm coming back after you now, uh, I would not allow. So John, I'm I'm hearing again. I keep going back to the traditional models of uh, for our laws, um, self-defense. Uh, first of all, I guess we don't have yet a, a unified definition of what it means to go on the offensive. But it seems to me that you're talking about acting uh, within the norms of self-defense and standing your own ground, protecting your property, protecting your assets, protecting your Correct. people, and doing whatever is necessary there. But a very different matter if the uh, uh, if the criminal has fled the scene and is no longer attacking, uh, you seem to be advocating you do not have the right. You should be, you know, this is more the role of the government to go hunting after that group or the it, people and launching something on your own. As frustrating as it is and, and to see, like, and, and I work for some very large companies, but as frustrating as it is to see attacks like that occur, you know, on your watch, right? And even with the notion of, of saying, hey, you know, I'm a little ticked off here um, because I, I'm about to, you know, spend a month uh, dealing with this incident and regulators and everything else, right? Uh, I, I can't think of nothing else, uh, nothing worse than uh, doing something further that may have, you know, unintended consequences, right? 
And then, you know, and then the company, like, you know, they didn't endorse that behavior on my behalf. Uh, so yeah. I, I just, I, yeah. I, I, but I think, but I think though, you know, the real thing here, David is, and, and I'm sure, you know, Gamero's really good at this, right? You know, he, he's going to dissect what that means differently. Like I'm looking at it and say, anything I can do to prevent this attack from continuing, I'm going to do, but that's where I'm going to stop, right? And in some cases that may appear offensive, but, you know, in my definition, um, I would never launch an attack, execute malware, uh, or anything of that nature against, you know, potential adversary. Uh, you know, most of the time during an incident, you don't have attribution to begin with. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult, maybe a fine line for some, but it was never really fine line for me. Great point. And let me, um, just to, I, I want to elicit the views of all three of uh, you on this, uh, question. Uh, it also suggests several things. We haven't, really define where the lines of self-defense versus going on the offensive are. We don't have those norms in place. And um, you all seem to have hinted that there are a lot of things that companies are doing right now, sort of quietly, um, not asking for permission and, if necessary, begging for forgiveness. And no doubt there are um, companies that are working with these companies to do certain things. So it sounds like we have uh, sort of an unregulated marketplace out there um where you know maybe the you know the norms the laws have to be defined about what companies really should be doing can be doing etc and that is yet to be uh defined and so all of this sort of percolates up to a i think a fundamental question which uh i'll draw an analogy to a lot of things that have been happening lately and clearly i've gotten a lot of coverage and the question I want to ask you three is because I think you've made great points about what is needed, what is overdue. Uh, Jeff, if I can summarize your views, we don't need another report. Or to quote Bob Dylan, uh, you don't, you no longer need a weatherman or paraphrase. You don't no longer need a weatherman to know which way the wind is blowing. Um, is it going to take a crisis before we actually begin to get an appropriate model, the right laws, the norms, the treaties, the international cooperation uh, in place. And I say that because there are plenty of warnings about the pandemic, the opioid crisis, and is this going to be the next one that we're going to live with? So to me, the crisis that that we'll eventually encounter is not going to be simply a cyber one, right? Because cyber doesn't isn't doesn't something that happens in a vacuum. We've experienced a crisis over the last year with the uh, with the COVID uh, pandemic, and it's been very interesting to watch how, principally, the criminal element of the world has tried to take advantage of that to use it to you know get into more networks and steal more stuff. Um, and so there's some learning to be done certainly from that. But the reason why I I underline speed so much is it's going to take us a long time to develop a better effective model in this space. And uh, we need to telescope that down as far as we can, because the next crisis is, is going to be, you know, we'll have different crises along the way, but, but the big one, whatever that is, and I hate the Pearl Harbor analogy, which I reject. Um, but, you know, the world's changing very rapidly. You know, Russia's a, what John McCain call it, a gas station run by the mafia. Well, when we move away to other alternative forms of energy and the Russian economy collapses, if that happens, are they just going to sit by and have that, you know, become a third world country? I think not. And so whatever that whatever that dramatic change in the world order that's coming happens, if we haven't figured this out by then, it's going to be 10 times worse for this nation. So the need for speed is not so much, it's important to do it to address the problem as it is today, but it's so much more important to address it as the problem as it's going to become. And uh, and we just don't have the foresight right now. I think, you know, the the commonality of views and the com- and the unity of our nation to do that. I mean, look what happened with the pandemic. There was great work done by the previous administration to prepare for one. And then the last one just totally ignored all that. So, you know, we, we 
we got to get our act together, not because of the way the situation is today, but the way it's going to become. And, and Jeff, in deference to the intelligence community, uh, year after year after year, you can go back a number of administrations. There were warnings to um, about the potential for a global pandemic and its implications. And indeed, September of 2019, a report came out from the President's Commission of Economic Advisors, Council of Economic Advisors, warning about the lack of preparedness for a global pandemic, not a matter of if, just when. Um, and actually predicting the loss of 500,000 lives and uh, significant damage to our economy. And I feel like we're, we've already heard those clarion warnings uh, about cyber. And so, you know, John, Guillermo, I'd love to have your views on whether you think it's going to take a crisis uh, to do this. And, and what, maybe I'll just twist or pivot on Jeff's point. What what is it that can cause an acceleration of the thinking and the modeling and the, we'll call it the institutional response? Yeah, so for 25 years, I've tried never to play the fear, uncertainty, and doubt you know, type of guy, right? But um, I would argue that we're actually in a crisis right now and in that crisis. And, and here's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I'll say that, right? Um, you know, like, like, like Guillermo, I, I, I've worked on countless number of uh, ransomware cases and they follow a pretty similar pattern, right? Um, and, and that's fine. But what we, what we just saw recently with the solar winds attack, um, there was another one, um, with a company called Excelion, right? And even the micro, the most recent Microsoft exchange attack is that the attackers are smart. They always pivot before we do, right? And they're pivoting to platforms that have mass adoption. Now, I want you to think about electronic health record platforms, pharmacy benefit manager platforms, claims and billing platforms, right? Uh, just in healthcare, right? Think about financial service platforms, right? When, as this pivot, you know, happens and it's happening right in front of our eyes, when the attackers are actually going after the platforms that give them access to the masses, right? then in one fell swoop, they have the ability to, you know, enact serious damage, right? So, you know, think about the stock exchange. Any of these platforms, and and we built our IT systems to be more efficient, to, you know, to be scalable, and that, you know, and, and now we have attackers going after that scalability, right? That scalability is one that raises fear uh, in a lot of people's hearts, right? And it's one that's going to get the attention of people very, very quickly. So I, I would counter we're, you know, we're beginning to see that crisis in front of us. And if you pick out your favorite platform, um, you know, then, you know, you just, just imagine what happens at that point, right? So just in ransomware, um, some of the, the, uh, the companies that make products for managed services providers, they've been a favorite target of attackers because when they get into that, that platform that manages 60, 70, 100 companies, they can execute ransomware on all of them in seconds. I mean, I watched last year a thousand machines get infected with ransomware in under 90 seconds. And that occurred across 40 companies, right? You think about the scale of that, you know, that's different than some hacker sitting there and, you know, getting into a clinic and, 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 you know, encrypting their data, right? So to me, um, I'm fearful that some of these platforms are the ones that manage our grid, manage our financial system. Our, our country can't sustain uh, a depression if it's down for three days in our financial systems, right? So that's, I, I, I think we're starting to see uh, components of it now. So I'll give you a, a, maybe a slightly different perspective here. First, I know of some Good examples of where a crisis really changed, in, specifically on Internet, if you think of what Estonia went through and what they look like mm-hmm. today. And they're still on the battlefield of, of you know, facing, facing the, uh, the Russians on a daily basis. But they looked at the situation and realized, oh, boy, we've got to start from the ground up. Um, we can't do that, right? I mean, we can, but realistically, we can't. And the reality is most of our problem is um, – Nothing in our on our uh, internet economy and our digital economy is what we're really talking about 
is really capable of being resilient in the face of a determined attacker. We didn't build the stuff for that reason. We built it to be easy, semi-reliable, and have lots and lots of features that people would pay for. And that's where all the code has created the problems that we deal with. And I don't blame anybody who wrote the code. They were doing what the market made sense for them to do. Um, I think we are probably going to be just going through crisis after crisis. And after each one of them, we're going to ask, will the next crisis cause us to change how we're doing things? And a lot of people are going to say, yeah, you know, we're going to one of these days, we're going to get to something big or we're not. And we're just going to keep having this conversation around each one and each one will change something small. I'm not very confident, frankly, that the COVID-19 crisis is going to really change how we do public health care. I think in five years, if we don't have another crisis, uh, we're going to probably walk back some of these things. It's just how this works. So uh, what, whatever solutions emerge from this are going to be incremental. They're going to be on the edges. And we're going to be talking about this the same way in many, in, in many respects in five or 10 years um, until, I suspect, uh, we have some significant changes on an international scale, like, for example, uh, the Russians change the way they interact with the rest of the world. China changes the way that they're going to interact. We don't have North Korea's. We don't have Iran's acting the way they do. And that's a pie dream. But um, as long as those are the havens for a lot of this activity, um, it, it's going to be very impo- it's going to be impossible to, to go after the bad guys in a serious way. So I want to thank all three of you uh, for a, a terrifically informative, thoughtful, and uh, I'll call it very deliberate and calm conversation. Obviously, uh, you bring a, a great deal of experience and perspective to this. And I, if, with your permission, I'd like to label this a conversation to be continued. And we'll be posting this along with the write-up, obviously, on our website and getting this out to people. But um, Jeff uh, didn't take a commission to get you three to put together, I think, the thoughts that are amongst the most uh, and important about how um, not only how we are thinking about this issue, but also uh, the thoughtfulness that has to be applied and is yet to be applied. And hopefully this will uh, become a priority. Hopefully it won't take eight. Uh, and I agree with you, John, we are in a crisis. Okay. But, you know, um, it's yet to be recognized as such. And you know, there may be an existential event yet to come, hopefully not. Um, but thank you, all three. Very, very helpful, very thoughtful, very informative. Some great, you know, responses online to the comments you're making and a conversation to be continued. So thank you again. Thank you, David. Thanks, Cameron. Yeah, thank you, David. Thank you all very much. Thank you. David Lawrence is founder and chief collaboration officer at Rain. He spoke with Jeff Gastelli, former managing director at Accenture Federal Services, Guillermo Christensen, managing partner and the data security and privacy defense groups at Ice Miller, and John Ford, cyber strategist at IronNet Cybersecurity. Individuals and organizations turn to Rain for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. If you like what you heard today, consider becoming a member of the largest community of risk professionals today. Find out more at RainNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.